Hello there, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman, and you're listening to Exploring Different Brains. Hi, this is Dr. Hacky Reitman, and we're, we have a real treat for you today on Exploring Different Brains. We have Matt Schnepps. He's an astrophysicist, a visiting scientist at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, a founding member of the Science Education Department at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, founded the Laboratory for Visual Learning to carry out research in cognitive psychology to investigate how individual differences in neurology, including those associated with dyslexia, ADHD, and autism spectrum disorders, affect how people learn science. He also, just as an extra value added himself, happens to be dyslexic. And so I'm honored to be talking today with Dr. Matthew Schnepps. Matt, welcome. How are you? Good. Thank you. I'm honored as well. And uh, j just a, a quick correction on, on my very nice introduction you gave me. Um, it's not that I just happen to have dyslexia. It's because of my dyslexia that I've done these things. So it's a bit different. <laughs> I would like you to repeat what you just said and expound upon it. What I heard you say is, the way my brain works, is that hacky, it's not just that I happen to be into this and happen to be dyslexic. I am into what I'm into precisely because I am dyslexic. Did I get that right? You got it 100% correct. Then tell us how it all began. This is fascinating. I may write a book about you. <laughs> well, how it all began, I mean, that's a very long story. Um, how can we make it succinct? Um, let, let me think for a second. I, I mean, you know, at some level, I, I've ended up here because of accidents of career, right? I mean, that happens to everybody. You, you, you know, you, you think you're going to do something in life, and, uh, you know, the ball bounces this way and that way. And before you know it, you're someplace different from where you thought you would be. And that's very much the case with me. However, what makes me a little bit different is that I was always obsessively interested in certain things. And I followed through on them. So, for example, when I was very young, I just loved astronomy. I mean, I really did. I, I just thought everything astronomical was fascinating and very, very interesting and beautiful. And I kind of knew from the age of, uh, I don't know, seven, eight, whenever you're kind of conscious of these kinds of things, that I wanted to be an astronomer. And so I spent you know, the early part of my career just trying to become an astronomer. But you know how the accidents of these uh, uh, sport games go. Um, uh, you know, my attempts to go this way and that didn't work because I couldn't do standardized tests. Uh, you, you know, I, th there were a lot of things I couldn't do. Uh, it was very disappointing to me. And, I, and I, I didn't get to where I wanted to go, even though I was very good at the things that I was doing. So I, I, I nevertheless kind of made it all the way up to MIT and got a PhD in astrophysics. Um, but once I was there, I realized there's a lot of stuff I just can't do. I can't read the papers that I have to read. Uh, it's really hard for me to go to meetings and sit in the meetings. 
Uh, there were a lot of things that just, you know, made it difficult for me to keep going as an astronomer. And so rather than feeling bad about myself, which is what, you know, often happens when you're sort of kicked into a corner and you don't know what to do, I started to think, well, how, you know, what are the things that I'm good at and how can I really maximize those things? And so I was very good at dealing with images. I, that's why I loved astronomy. Uh, I was very good at telling stories. Uh, I, I decided I wanted to go into filmmaking. I, I did that. Um, I started a group that uh, created educational television programs for uh, science learners. Uh, I then became very interested in how people learn. Uh, so I started looking at the neuroscience of those things and, uh, you know, on and on and on. And that's kind of how I ended up where I am. And it's all because I was very curious about how my own brain worked. And also, I followed the things I was interested in and really tried to make the best use of the things that I was good at. I, 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 I started ignoring what other people expected me to be good at, and I started focusing on the things that I'm good at. So that's a very long-winded answer to your short question. <laughs> that's a great answer, and you hit on so many points that are actually chapters in the Asper Tools book. I mean, uh, harnessing the hyper-interests. Uh, we as a society have to stop focusing on saying, stop talking about that. You have to be like everybody else. No. If you love the stars, if you love dinosaurs, if you love music, go for it. Figure out a way to make money with it, and you'll never work a day in your life. And it sounds like you have really, really, at an early age, found your niche. Now, tell me what your, your daily activities are like now. Like, write what you're doing now in Boston now. <laughs> well, right now, I'm obviously, I'm speaking with you. And uh, I do a fair bit of that. Uh, I, 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 um, I, I kind of make it a personal mission to speak out um, to help support people with various kinds of cognitive disabilities um, who become marginalized because of the way society treats us. And um, so I, I do a lot of work just doing outreach uh, similar to what we're doing here to try and get people to understand that if you have something that's different about your brain, it doesn't mean that you're not a productive citizen, that you can't make important contributions. And furthermore, that in, in many cases, the unusual perspective you bring can open up new ways of thinking that's very valuable to society to society so so the fact that our brains are different makes it possible for us to do things other people can't because they don't have our perspective they don't have our skills they don't have our ways of thinking and I'm trying to get that message out as broadly as I can. So a large part of my day is spent doing writing, uh, talking to people like you, um, you know, whatever. Just anything I can. I, 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 um, I'm, I started a new institute at uh, UMass Boston where I have an appointment uh, called the Institute for Compassionate Technology. And we have a parallel initiative at uh, MIT called the uh, Compassionate Tech Lab. Um, where we're trying to use technology to further some of these aims uh, because uh, I, I feel technology is a tremendous tool for people like us. Uh, it helps us 
make it through life in ways that might be difficult otherwise. At least it was for me. And so I'm trying to get that word spread. And so, you know, we're doing that kind of work. So, I, you know, there's a lot of things I do. And, I, and unfortunately, a lot of them has to do with reading and writing, which I'm not very good at. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty good at writing, but I can't read my own writing. So it's, it's very <laughs> difficult uh, for me. Um, and it's very frustrating. Uh, and, and, you know, that's, that's part of the story, too. You know, just because you're, you're successful and you make it, it doesn't mean that it's not hard and that it's not painful and that you don't have lots and lots of very bad days. And that's why what you said was so important, that, you know, you, you won't work a day in your life if you're doing something you're passionate about. It's true. You know, so, you, you know, it's like playing soccer or something. You know, your team loses. Well, you, you know, you, you, you don't stop playing soccer because your team lost. You love soccer, so you keep playing. And it's the same with, with these kinds of things. You know, you have trouble. You don't get grants. People reject you. You don't get into programs or schools that you want. You don't stop and give up. You keep playing. You keep going. And you can only do that if you're passionate about what you do. That is great. That is I tell you what, that's going to be a great soundbite of this one. I'm going to play that at night to inspire me. That's that's really good. Uh, I'd play music if I were you. <laughs> now, what's your favorite music? Oh, that's a good question. I, I listen to a lot of music. I, I actually love um, uh, pop music. Uh, you know, right now I'm kind of... Uh, uh, in love with Adele. I mean, I just, uh, you know, her voice is so incredible. And I, I don't know, I, I find music very inspiring. Um, you know, it could be something sophisticated like Bach, or it could be something, you know, that's more pop rock or something. But somebody who's really good at their craft is inspiring. Okay, and I draw from that inspiration. You know, I can't sing like Adele, but the fact that she can do what she does inspires me to do something I can do, and I try to do it as well as Adele can in that medium, right? And so, you know, I'm not claiming that I'm an Adele, but these people inspire me and keep me going. So I, I listen to a lot of music. You are an Adele of astrophysics and all of this other stuff that I can't pronounce, man. You're an, you're not, an not a. Well, thank you, but you know, I, I don't know if the astrophysicists would agree. I mean, I stopped doing that kind of stuff a long time ago. But you've applied it. You've applied the principles to what you're doing here. I yes, no, I'll take the compliment. Thank you. Okay, good, good. Do you see neurodiversity the way I do? That it's we're all on kind of a spectrum of different stuff, different ways of wiring in our brains, or do you do you see it as like dyslexic is over here and Asperger's over here and ADHD is over here. How do you see neurodiversity? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the way I, I see it is that, you know, I very much subscribe to the ideas that a, a, a friend and colleague of mine, Todd Rose, he's a, he's a uh, instructor at uh, Harvard in the education school, and he worked with me for a number of years. Todd has ADHD, and he uh, wrote a book that was just published uh, called uh, – oh, I forgot the exact title, but it, it, it's, it's essentially about the myth of average. And, you know, he, he and I worked together for, for a number of years, and he, he influenced my thinking quite a bit. And, and basically, the idea is very simple. It, it's, you know, the, the idea that if you look at um, um, a, a pool of people – and you try and make an average of them, 
you'll end up with a representation that doesn't actually represent anyone because there is no average person. Everybody is different. Everybody is unique. And I see, you know, so-called, and I, and I put so-called in quotes uh, deliberately, uh, disabilities, uh, you know, in this camp. I mean, people are just different. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter what, you know, the, the, the issues are. Uh, it, you know, we, we think... You know, the, the average person, whatever that is, and doesn't really exist, the, the average person thinks that they're okay. You know, they're, they're, they're fine. But you know what? They can't do so many things. I mean, they're actually totally impaired. It, you know, th think of us as a, as, a, as a population that lives on a planet, all right? We're, we're stuck on this blue marble, okay? And we think we're free, Right, but gravity binds us to the surface of this ball. Uh, if we travel out even a little bit into space, will you die immediately? Y you know, we're not free at all. We're completely bound up by who we are, where we are, how we were born, all these things, and yet we think that um, you know, being uh, normal, being uh, you know, is the best situation you can be. And it's not true. We all have our limitations. Every single person, no matter how uh, intelligent, successful, whatever, they all have their limitations. They're things they can't do. So why go and single out certain people, like people with ADHD or dyslexia or autism, and say, "Hey, these people are really in trouble. They, you know, they're <laughs> they're not like us at all." Uh, that doesn't mean they're 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 not as good as you, but there's that implication. You know, they kind of imply, well, you're not like me, so you're not as good. But you know what, Charlie, you're stuck on this ball along with the rest of us, and you can't get off any better than we can. And if your spacesuit leaked when you got up into space, you'd be just as dead as you know anybody else. And don't tell me that you're so special. Uh, so so uh, you, you know, I, I just feel that. We have to get away from looking at people as averages and as groups. Uh, you know, all people are just, with dyslexia are like this. All people with autism are like that. Uh, all people who are blind are like that. It just isn't true. We all are people, and we all have differences. We all have things we can do well. We all have things we can't do well. And let's start focusing on making the best of what we've got. That's my view. So if somebody is very good at certain kinds of things, but they're not good at others, don't dwell on the things they're not good at. Dwell on the things that they're good at. You know, take advantage of your skills and really amplify those. So I get very angry with school systems because schools tend not to look at people that way. They tend very often to look at people in terms of averages, normals, and it makes life for children going through school hell. Um, you know, all of us who've who've are different and have been through the educational system have bad stories to tell. It's very sad. It shouldn't be that way, right? Schools should be a time of excitement and exploration. So, I, you know, I have a beef with schools, um, and, you know, I'd like to see that changed. Anyway, we've kind of gotten away from your question. No, no, no. That was, that, that is so eloquent and so well put. And I think a corollary to that is, and once we recognize that everyone's brain is wired differently. Let's give people who need a little help to achieve their maximum success, let's give them that help instead of beating them down. Because all of us need some degree of help to varying degrees. I haven't yet met the person who's the whole package because it, it usually takes a team to achieve 
success. And I'm sure that as brilliant as you are with everything you're doing, you're the first one to give accolades to your colleagues and the other people who make what you achieve possible. And there's varying degrees of that. No? Uh, you, you know, I, I, I've been fortunate like you to have met, you know, many people and I've worked with lots and lots of different kinds of people. And at a, at a place like Harvard or MIT, where I've spent a lot of time, you once in a rare while actually encounter people who the world calls geniuses. Okay, these are intellectual giants, people who are capable of ways of thinking that are beyond you know, the pale of what the average person thinks about. And, and I've known people, I would say, who are geniuses. And it's amazing to meet these people, and, I, and I've worked with them, and I always feel very small whenever they do something that, you know, they think in ways I just can't even get close to. And yet, you know, when you look at the whole package, these people have lots and lots of things they can't do that, you know, you're sort of going, my God, why, why is this person so bad at this? And how come they can't do that? And, and so forth. And so, you know, society tends to sort of focus on things that um, it thinks are important. But I think the bad thing is that, that it often does it in a way that makes people feel bad who, who aren't the way that you're expecting them to. And I think that's wrong. I think people shouldn't be made to feel bad because they're not member of this club or that club. Um, um, so, you know, th these are the kinds of things I'd like to try and change. And I think you're, you're doing similar things. Well, that's, that's great. And I agree a hundred percent. You know, you've made me feel better uh, being a graduate of Boston university because I have always felt bad. I did not go to MIT and Harvard. So you've made me feel better, Matt, because well, well, I, I, I have to tell you Harvard MIT guys are. Well, I have to tell you a story. You see, you're doing what I'm saying the world shouldn't do, okay? And please don't take this as an aggressive gesture on my part. But, but essentially, you're saying, okay, this guy has an MIT label around his neck. Hence, he's, you know, achieved or smart or something. He's something I'm not, all right? And I have to tell you, how did I get into MIT, okay, when I, when I was first getting my PhD, okay? How did I get into MIT, all right. I got in because I was passionate about astronomy and I did lots of things. I belonged to astronomy clubs. I, I was very active when I was in high school and so forth. But the fact of the matter is, I, because of my dyslexia, I wasn't able to get decent scores on any kind of graduate record exam. These are required exams you need to take, like SATs, in order to get into graduate school. My scores were miserable, okay? And all the places I applied to rejected me. The only place that took me was MIT. And the reason they took me is that they didn't look at these scores at that time. Now it's different. <laughs> but at the time, those scores weren't important to MIT. You go and you interview, you talk to them, you tell them about what you did in your life. And that's how you get into the school. And they let me in, right? So, it, 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 you know, I felt like an imposter also. I felt like, okay, I got in here, great. <laughs> But the fun thing was, once I was in there, I, I was normal. I was like everybody else there. They're all strange and weird and different, and, and it was a really fun place, and we enjoyed ourselves, and I did well. I did okay. I, you know, I wasn't the best student at MIT. I wasn't the worst student at MIT. So the point is, it's, it's really not right to label me as, as high-achieving because I'm from MIT and I'm not from BU or some other place, because that's not 
you know, that's not really the measure of a person's worth. It's not, it's not the labels, the diplomas, the, you know, the trinkets that you wear around your neck that determine it. It's what you do with your life, right? Very so, well, very good. Very well said. I didn't mean to pick on my host. because you, you No, could... no, no. It's just, it's funny because I don't think it's possible to be an astrophysicist and do all of these other things. And I'm about to ask you how you got into the laboratory for visual learning, but um, without having certain Aspie traits. So I have to be careful when I make jokes with you because <laughs> read my book and it'll say, no, now listen, Matt, I'm just fooling around here. But I actually, there is some jealousy books. from us Boston University people. We know you guys got the secret handshake over there. Let me ask you about neuroplasticity, because I truly believe, and I think there's a lot of scientific data now, that at any age, of course, the most, the younger you are, the more, your brain has the ability to literally rewire itself in different ways. And uh, that gives everyone hope. You know, that gives us all hope. How do you feel about the neuroplasticity? Do you believe that brains are really capable of rewiring themselves? Um, to, to ask me, do I believe, is, is really the wrong way of framing it. it. It's like, how is it possible that the brains don't rewire themselves is the way I look at it, okay? Um, you know, do, do, do your fingers, nails change over time in response to things? Yes, they do. You know, they're, they're not the same fingernails you've, you were born with. And, uh, you know, they're constantly growing and changing. And it's the same with the cells in our brain. Um, every time we learn something, we're rewiring, okay? The, it's not that we're putting uh, chinks of information into our brain with uh, little tags on them like, a, you know, some kind of a file cabinet. We're rewiring our brains, and that's the basis of learning. And if, and if we weren't able to rewire our brains, we wouldn't learn anything. We'd just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. So imagine there's some bottleneck in some part of your brain and you're trying to do something, maybe you're trying to play basketball and you're trying to shoot a certain kind of shot and your brain just won't allow your muscles to be controlled in the way that you want to, you just can't figure it out and, and it just won't happen easily the way it does with somebody else. Well, if you keep practicing and practicing and practicing and you really make this your goal, eventually you kind of rewire your brain, you use different circuits to make that shot and you do it. And, and so, you know, this happens all the time. I mean, this is not conjecture, in my opinion. I, I think this is just a well-established part of neuroscience. The brain rewires all the time. So the, the brain is plastic, uh, you know. Uh, that's why it's so bad to label people, because it's, it kind of says, okay, this person's stuck with this brain, and they're not going to be able to change anything. That's not true. I mean, how, you know, how do I read? You know, I can't read. My, I, was, I was not born with the kind of wiring that lets me read the way other people do. I had to come up with different ways of doing it, and I have to, you know, work much harder to do it because I'm using parts of my brain that really weren't optimized for these kinds of tasks, but I do it. So, Matt, that's a great segue into the laboratory for visual learning. Educate me. Tell our audience about how you got into that 
and what is it and what are you doing? Uh, the Laboratory for Visual Learning started, uh, I started it about um, 14 years ago. And, and the reason I started it is that the work I was doing in, in education was taking me to a place where we were beginning to look at how differences in people's experience shaped um, what they believed in science and what they could learn. And I'll give you an example. I, I made a very famous movie about this. Uh, it's called A Private Universe. And uh, there's a series of movies that came out afterwards called uh, The Private Universe Project or Minds of Our Own. Uh, they've been seen on PBS and broadcast worldwide, and they're still being used. So one of the things we did is we went to like Harvard graduation, MIT graduation, and we interviewed people in their caps and gowns, literally. They're just coming off the stage. And I pulled them aside, and I would say things like, Right now, it's kind of warm outside, but if you wait maybe six months or so, you're going to get cold. Why is that? And, and I, I'd ask other things like, well, sometimes the moon is sort of round like this, and sometimes it's sort of skinny. Why is that? And I'd ask these questions in this very childlike way, okay? And these are Harvard graduates, MIT graduates, engineers, PhDs, professors even, okay? And what's interesting is very many of the people, when they responded, told me things that were childlike in their answers, meaning that they were beliefs that they grew up with when they were in kindergarten or their mother told them or something. And all that education they had at MIT and Harvard and whatever didn't do anything to change these ideas. And the things they were telling me from kindergarten and so forth were wrong. They weren't right. They weren't what MIT and Harvard and the high schools and all the other education they had taught. They were telling me the wrong stuff. And so this was very interesting. It sort of said that your experience and your personal beliefs about things severely affect what you learn or what you're able to learn and internalize. You know, it's almost like you can't change your brain if you're influenced by your personal beliefs. And this became a big area of research in education uh, that you know many, many people were involved in, and not just me. Um, but, but it got me really interested with a, with a related question. Well, saying, okay, if, if experience makes such a big difference, what about neurology? What if you're born differently? Okay, what if you, you, know, you come from a different culture, or you're a, a boy versus a girl, or you have ADHD or dyslexia or autism. How does that change how you think about things and how you learn? And so we started the Laboratory for Visual Learning. Uh, is that what it's called? <laughs> Laboratory for Visual Learning um, to um, um, investigate these things using techniques of neuroscience. And it, it started a whole new sub-career for me. Um, there's a lot of fun. So, so that's, that's what we do, and we still do that. How do you correlate what you just said? I don't know if you're familiar with this scene from uh, Goodwill Hunting. Did you happen to see that movie? Sure. <clears throat> Remember the scene where Robin Williams and the guy who won the fielding are in that bar, and he doesn't mm -hmm. recognize the name Ted Kaczynski? Right. And then he asks the bartender, mm -hmm. um, Unabomber. Does that correlate to what you just said? Um, it does. Um, th th yeah, I mean, sure it does. Um, th 
you know, there's a lot of things that are going through my mind right now, which is why I'm sort of hesitating uh, answering you right off. Um, the, the key thing is that factoids like Ted Kaczynski are a certain type of information, okay? And some people just are not very good at, at sort of uh, categorizing and holding those kinds of pieces of information in their heads. Uh, I'll talk about me because I, I know my brain better. Uh, for example, I was not able to learn the multiplication tables. I, I still don't know the multiplication tables. I, I know many of them. You know, one times two is two. I, I can do some of those. Uh, but you ask me some of the more complicated ones, like uh, seven times something, usually the odd numbers. Um, I can't remember that number. And, you know, my parents drilled me and practiced me, and they used to bribe me by giving me, you know, essentially a penny for every table I would memorize and all this kind of stuff, and nothing ever worked. My brain just cannot hold certain types of facts in, in its whatever it is. I just can't store them. I'm not able to do that. You know, uh, and, and, you know, in some sense, that's kind of debilitating. Uh, teachers often say, well, what if you have to make change at a, at a grocery store? Well, I'm saying, well, yeah, but I'm not really trying to be a cashier. That's not my goal in life. Uh, I have a calculator I keep in my pocket. I, you know, I have this phone. It does all this stuff for me. I don't need to know these things. You know, sure, maybe you can do some complicated sum or, or multiplication product faster than I can. But, you know, that's not the most important thing to me at this moment in my life. And, and I have lots and lots of technological tools that can do these things for me. So one of the things that I did in my life is to try and find ways that technology could help me get around these kinds of what I felt were silly limitations, things that were keeping me from doing things I wanted to do. You know, there were things that teachers thought were very important. I mean, you know, you have to know all the presidents uh, of the country or the names of every single state and their capitals. And well, I couldn't do that stuff. But I didn't really see the value of it. And of course, today, you know, Google is an extension of our brain, right? We don't have to know what we used to have to know. Um, and, and I have machines that can access my Google right away. And I use them all the time. And I don't feel ashamed to use them. So I'm focusing now on trying to get people to learn how do you use technology to do types of things that aren't easy for you to do? You know, in the case of autism, it might be having to do with recognizing emotional response or uh, reading people's uh, emotions. Uh, but, you know, you can have a machine do that now. You know, machines can recognize when faces are happy or sad or whatever, and they can pipe that information to you in a little device. And then you, you look at it and you say, oh, yeah, this person's sad. And when you're sad, you're supposed to go do this. And this is how you should respond to this person. And you, you pull that information out from your memory and you, you act appropriately. Why is that such a, a big, important deal? You know, a machine can do it. So, so I think technology can really help people. And, and so, you know, our current work is to really focus on how to use technology to help lots of people in all different things. Well, I applaud you for that work, and I agree. I do recognize, however, the double-edged sword nature of the technology in the following sense. If my brain doesn't rewire itself so that I can simultaneously play a video game talk to maybe a competitor I'm playing against who might be in a different country or around the block, talk to my friends in the room, listen to my mother, watch TV, listen to music playing. If I can't do that all at once, if, I, if my brain doesn't rewire to have some form of 
ADHD or it's opposite, I don't even know, then I'm going to be an outcast. So I have to develop that. By the same token, if my brain has a tendency to be forgetful and I might have early Alzheimer's or I might have, I had 26 pro heavyweight fights, so I took too many shots to the head, so it's trying to get me. Um, when I offload everything to my phone, when I ask my phone for directions, when I don't remember the phone numbers because I don't have to because I'm just going to tell my phone to call, I think by definition my memory has to get worse if you consider the memory a muscle. Or you might consider it as Sherlock Holmes did, which is I think how you consider the brain. He was explaining to Watson once, Watson was shocked. And this is going to alarm you as an astrophysicist. Watson was shocked that Sherlock Holmes thought that the sun revolved around the earth instead of the earth revolving around the sun. And he couldn't believe it. He says to Holmes, are you, what is with you? Anybody knows that. And Holmes said, what deduces it to me, Watson, whether the earth revolves around the sun or the sun revolves around the earth? I have to know things like all the different brands of cigarettes in case there's a stub at a murder site. Our brains are not infinite. And the wise lumberman will stock his attic carefully. Because if you just have too much junk in there, you're not going to be able to find your files. Do you see the brain like Sherlock Holmes? Well, uh, you, you kind of lost me a little bit. So um, okay. I'm not sure how Sherlock Holmes sees it. How does Sherlock Holmes see it? Could you just summarize that? He sees that? your brain is just a finite place where you can only store a certain amount of files. So if you, if you do as you say is appropriate to offload the files that a machine can do for you, like I'm using phone numbers because we all do that. No one remembers phone numbers anymore. I shouldn't say no one. Most of us don't because we don't use them. They're on the phone and you hit a button kind of thing. Whereas I can still remember at my parents' gas station in Jersey City when I used to have to call my mother there from the house. So I would tell her I was coming over so she could cross me across the street. 434-9571. Okay. I can barely tell you my own phone number now. I also don't have to remember directions because when I'm driving, I just put in the address and then the phone tells me where to go. Well, l l let me respond to this in, in two ways, okay? Hold on, Ted. I want the audience to know Matt just left because he thinks I, I came back. Such, I am such a moron. He's going, what am I doing talking to this guy? No, not at all. I'm not only at all. kidding. I'm only kidding, man. It's a joke. It's a joke. I had to get some, get a prop. But 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 look look, the the way I I, I look at it is you, you you can't just sort of say okay the brain is like a muscle and you exercise it and it I mean what you say is true there. I I I think what what is important here is that we need to distinguish between functionality and capacity, okay? So, you know, let's say um, you, you, you know, you, you want to memorize huge amounts of information and cram it into your brain. 
you're talking about capacity. You're, you're saying how much stuff can we sort of stuff in there and retrieve it, right? And, you know, as far as we know, the brain's capacity for information is very large, okay? You, you can stuff a lot of stuff in there, and it can, it can be, you know, retrieved, uh, you know, with some practice, uh, you know, you're not limited to two phone numbers, five phone numbers, 100 phone numbers, whatever it may be. But then there's the functionality side of it, okay, which is how well can you make use of this information to do something? And, and especially with people who are different, we may not have certain functionalities. We may not be able to take the things that are stored in our brains um, and retrieve them and make use of them the way other people can. And I'll give you an example from me again, because, you know, uh, that's free. It doesn't cost anything for me to use these examples. Um, I can't remember people's names. I, I happen to remember your name, Hacky, because it's very unusual, and uh, it's easy for me. But like the people that we met at that lunch you referred to earlier, I can't really remember their names. I still can't. And this is a part of dyslexia. Very often people with dyslexia have a lot of trouble retrieving names of things, including names of people. And, you know, you don't remember somebody's name in a social situation. That's very embarrassing. Uh, they, they think that you don't care about them or something, and often it's misinterpreted. So you develop lots of tricks for pretending you know their name or, here, why don't you introduce yourself to my friend here? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing where you don't have to actually use names. And so that kind of gets us into the functionality realm, okay? Um, I can't retrieve the names. It doesn't matter how I try and exercise that muscle. Believe me, I've exercised it to death. I can't remember the names. My brain just doesn't want to store that kind of information. But I can learn new functionalities. I can learn new ways to get around it. And that's where the plasticity comes in. And that's where the machines come in. The machines can help you make use of this in ways that other people can't. And I'll give you an example, okay? Here, here's the thing that I, I went to to get, and you're old enough that you may recognize what this is. Okay, do you know Slide what it is? rule, oh my God. Yeah, so you, you wanna tell people what this is? This looks like a slide rule, which by the way, I never mastered, <laughs> because my brain just couldn't get its head around it. Yeah, that, so a lot of pe young people won't know what this is because we don't use this today anymore. But when I was in, in high school, we didn't use this at all either, but other people did. And remember, I went into college being unable to do multiplication. I couldn't remember those, those rote facts. Seven times six is whatever it happens to be. I still don't know. <laughs> okay. But this, this was a machine that was available to me when I went to college to do multiplication. And not only can it do multiplication, it can do square roots and logs and you know all kinds of very sophisticated functions. And so when somebody put this into my hands and said, look, you're a physics student, you know, this is very helpful for you, it made my disability go away. I could now do all the multiplications, I could do all kinds of stuff very, very well, okay? And I was suddenly freed from a lifetime of drill and practice trying to memorize these damn tables to a point where I could function and do stuff and calculate things and solve problems. And I, I was very excited. So you know what I did? I said, hey, this is pretty amazing. What if I become the best person at school 
to use this thing. If I'm better at using this than the guy who knows all these numbers and facts and whatever, I can be better than that person. And that's what happened. I became so good at using this tool, I could do things using it that other people can't. And that's a form of plasticity, right? Where I'm doing it with a machine, not with my brain. I'm giving myself additional functionality that I didn't have before. So that's the sense in which I'm saying that, you know, these phones and all these other things can be helpful. I'm not saying to mindlessly, you know, pull them out at dinner and whatever, you know, it's not the point. The point is if you can figure out how to make it help you do something you can't, that's great. You can become better than other people. You're no longer a person who's like impaired and, and able to do it because they have some crutch. You're becoming a person who is super and is able to go beyond the limits of the human brain because they're using these technological tools. So to me, technology has a tremendous power. It has the power to add to the brain's plasticity. Um, and you have to learn how to do this. This is not a lazy man's thing. You know, like you said, you didn't ever master it. To master this is hard. But if you're motivated and you need to do it because something in your life requires you to do this kind of stuff and you can't do it, you'll marshal the mental resources needed to learn how to use these things. It's not a freebie. You know, you don't just get it and all of a sudden you can multiply. Okay, it takes skill. And it's the same for a phone. You want to use Siri or one of these things and you want it to actually do what it says it'll do, you got to learn how to work with it, okay? And so learning how to use technology is an important part of being a person who is different, at least in my view. That was such a fabulous analogy and, and such an important piece of the puzzle, if you will, a piece of the puzzle where it comes down to us helping each other but also using modern technology to help us, help us all. And we all do that. I'm wearing hearing aids because I can't hear so good. And I think that you hit the nail on the head in so many ways with that, uh, that last analogy. And it all takes hard work and it takes determination. But, you know, so what? So it does. Um, yeah, you, you can't just blame the technology and say, hey, technology is bad. You know, it, it, it's it, learning to use technology is a skill. And, and I'm saying, you know, we're in a technological age now. We no longer, you know, get our milk delivered in bottles by a horse and buggy outside the door. We're doing things very differently. You, you know, you go to a place like Google or Apple and you talk to them, to the, to the engineers there about how they develop all these wonderful pieces of technology that's used in commerce. You know, how do you do all that? Well, they don't write long books on this is how you design an iPhone 101 and, you know, have, have learned discussions. They're texting and they're, you know, doing all kinds of stuff that young people are very good at. And that's how they communicate. So the point is the world is changing. And things that we used to value as being very important to success are no longer the same things that are going to be important to success in future careers. So... Uh, you know, I, I, I'm just trying to encourage people to think more um, um, encouragingly about the technological world that we're encountering. I, I realize, you know, it changes how distracted we are. There's a lot of bad things that come with it, you know, potential for, uh, you know, hazing people, violent, uh, you know, reactions and all. There's a lot of bad stuff that comes with it. But, you know, anything has capabilities for bad but the, the capabilities for good, I think, far outweigh them. So I, I really want 
teachers and schools and people who are different to think about how can we use technology to help us so that we could be better than other people, not just as good as, but better than other people. We must embrace modern technology to level the playing field and to maximize each of our potential, all of us. I think we can more than level the playing field. I, can re I think we can turn it upside down. Absolutely. Um, now, Matt, what piece of advice would you have for someone whose brain is different, forget the labels for a minute, who's going off to college, they're going up to Boston to one of the 52 or so universities there. Um, is there one piece of advice that you can give them? Well, I, I always give the same piece of advice, no matter what the situation, um, and that is to find your passion and follow it blindly, <laughs> okay? Find something you love to do and just keep pushing at it. And the reason I say this is, one, you know, that's something you want to do, so it makes you feel good. But the other reason is you're going to encounter so many obstacles along the way that if you're doing something you like, when you encounter an obstacle, it doesn't matter. I mean, you just pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and keep going. But if you're doing something you don't really like, you know, you might give up and you might quit. So it's really important to kind of come into school. You don't know what all the world has to offer. You know, you can't imagine, okay, I want to be an astronomer. I, I knew that when I was a kid, but I didn't end up being an astronomer. That's not what I do now. Um, you have to just pick anything. It doesn't really matter what it is. Find something anything, sports, anything, anything that you love and really, really push it until it doesn't help you anymore and then move on to something else. So finding your passion, following it, trying to get through the obstacles that you're going to encounter lots every single day. Uh, that's my advice. Great advice. And on that note, what I want you to do, because we're going to have to wind down here, I could, Matt, really, I could talk to you all day long. I mean, this is this is great, great stuff. This is valuable stuff. And Thank I you. know it's common sense to you, but it's really, really valuable stuff. Um, if people want to learn more about the work you're doing and about you, where should they go? Well, that's a good question. Uh, um, I'm, I'm looking at my computer here. I, I, I think the, the good place to start is uh, we have a website called uh, Lab, L-A-B, Viz, V-I-S, Learn, and that stands for Laboratory for Visual Learning. So labvizlearn.com or org, actually. Either one works, but org is better. Uh, and, and there, there's a bunch of stuff about the work we do. Uh, the, the problem with the dyslexic brain is we, we like to do lots of different things at the same time, and we tend to kind of go all over the map. <laughs> um, so it, whenever you pin me down and say, okay, how can we find out about this or that, uh, I have so many different places to send you to, it gets confusing. I applaud everything you're doing, Matt, and I'm so glad that you're doing what you love doing. You're helping all of us. You're helping other people in what you're doing. Um, you're at, all jokes aside, you're at one of the true academic meccas up in Boston there. And MIT and Harvard, it, it doesn't get better than that. And, uh, and that's because of people like you helping other people. And uh, I, I'm, just, uh, I'm just in awe of 
getting to actually talk to somebody like you and meeting you. And I, uh, I hope to see you in person up there soon. Well, you know, as I mentioned, I have uh, in-laws uh, very close to you, and well, I'm sure we'll meet up pretty soon. Uh, but you know, you're you're a fabulous host, Hacky. Uh, you know, you you manage to draw the best out of uh, your guests, and uh, uh, you know, I'm I'm just really honored that uh, you've taken the time to to do this because uh, you, you know you you've done a, an amazing job of uh, getting me to focus on things that you know I think are helpful to everyone, and this is what I'm trying to do. So you're helping me, and I really appreciate that. Um, so thank you very much for doing this. We've been talking with Matt Schnapps up at MIT and Harvard. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.com.